Well, good morning. Let me go ahead and start with a word of prayer this morning, and then we're going to try to finish up our study. And one way or the other, we're going to finish up our study, because this is the last, last Sunday we have devoted to it. So we've, we've got to finish up our study. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for today. This is the day you've made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We are glad to be in your house with your people around your word. Lord, bless our time. Lord, help us to see the Lord Jesus more clearly. Lord, give us um, windows into our own hearts. Uh, We recognize that um, our hearts can deceive us. And so, Lord, we want our hearts to be laid open before your word, that your word would be um, dissecting our hearts, uh, helping us see what's in there that doesn't need to be in there, and helping to see what's missing. Lord, we pray that you would do this uh, so that Christ might be glorified in our lives. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, glad you're here. I wanted to tell you, um, where are we going? So where are we going with Sunday School? So this Sunday, we're hoping to, to wrap up the book. Um, so this will be our last Sunday in the, the Summer Study Conscience book. Next Sunday is our members meeting, so just wanted to let you guys know we'll be starting a little earlier, um, about 9.15, just to, to try to, there's lots to cover in business meetings, and we just want to make sure we have plenty of time. So that's next Sunday. Um, the following Sunday, which is uh, September 3rd, uh, that's Labor Day weekend, we're going to have uh, our, uh, a guest speaker, Hot Neil Perez, which will be really exciting. We've been talking about having Hot Neil for a while. Um, Hot Neil was kind of the, um, the, the one, the missionary that we supported a couple years ago for VBS. We were hoping to get him later that year. Travel arrangements didn't work out. It seems this is going to be what works out. So that's two weeks from today. Hot Neil will have the Sunday school hour to share with us uh, what's going on and with his ministry in Cuba. And so that'll be a blessing for us to hear from him. The following Sunday, September 10th, is Books and Breakfast. And then the following Sunday, the 17th, is when we'll start our new rotation of course seminars, so, which we'll be telling you which seminars we'll be going through over the next year and the members meeting next week. So that just kind of gives you an idea of of where we're going, but where have we been? So just trying to kind of wrap up, not just our, our last chapter, but really this study this morning. Um, and, and our desire, uh, the elders' desire has been that this has been a blessing for you, the study that we've been going through on the conscience, uh, that this has been uh, both encouraging and, and even convicting. Hopefully it's been challenging, right? So um, as we conclude, I'm going to try to be pretty efficient this morning because I'd like to open up at the end, make sure I, I do give some time just for reflections you've had over the course of this study, things that have been helpful um, things that the Lord's using to grow you personally. Um, I, I definitely want to leave some time. And then any just, you know, follow-up questions from, from the study, things you've had, even if it was back in chapter one or whatever, because uh, we are kind of closing the door on this particular study, you know, um, after this. But I do think this has been a timely study. Um, and and I, I was, as I was thinking through the study, I was thinking it's been timely in a, in a few different capacities. So I think in one area, it's been really timely for our church uh, to be going through this study. And, and why do I say that? Well, one reason, I mean, last week, Pastor Jerry spent the whole sermon talking about the church's family, okay? So the church's family. So how do we relate 
to one another as family members. Uh, in a family, you don't pick your other family members. I don't know about any of you, but I had no choice over my sisters that I was given. Now, I'm very thankful for the sisters God gave me, but whether I liked them or not didn't really matter along the way because it wasn't my family and they were in the family, okay? So the church family is kind of similar. Uh, if, if you're in the family of God, you've been adopted. You were chosen to be in this family, right? And so you didn't choose who else gets to be a part of this family, but what you do have is the opportunity to love all those who are in this family, right? So, so this is a very practical book on how that happens, in particular with people that you disagree with, okay? Because they're no less a part of the family of God, and if they're members of this church, they're no less members than, than you are. So how do we relate to one another? So I think that's been a very practical thing for our church. I think it's a very practical thing for us as Americans to think through these ideas. Um, being in America is a huge blessing. I don't want to underscore that at all. Um, it is a huge blessing, and yet, if you're not careful, it will train you to think in a certain way. We have a declaration of independence, meaning we declare that we're independent. And I think if you allow that to seep down individually, a lot of us like to behave as though we're independent as well, okay? And, and we have to be very careful because if Christianity is anything, it's not an independent religion, okay? We're dependent on God, first and foremost. We're dependent on Christ, his spirit. We're also dependent on one another. So the body of Christ, the language of the body, which we're going to look at this morning, because I think it's a helpful conclusion, the, the, the body language means you can't say to another member, I don't need you. You're not independent of any member in the body of Christ. So we have to be very careful when, when we go, living in such an individualistic society that we live in, not to become individuals in that, but to know that we depend on God and we depend on one another. So I think that's an important thing. Third thing that I was thinking through, especially uh, probably this is more younger generation and going, the rise of technology. Okay, so technology, um, social media, those things are, are here right now, and I think one of the things they can do is they can give you a deceptive idea of community. Uh, they can make you think that that community works a certain way online. And I think if we train ourselves to think of community in the way that online social media is training us to think in community, it's going to be a big problem in the church because the church doesn't function, function that way, okay? So um, it, it's, it's face-to-face interactions. You don't cancel people. You, don't do th- you learn to live with people. Internet, you just learn to silence the voices you don't want to hear, and you gather around you just the voices you do want to hear. So I think this is a helpful book um, that's been kind of guiding us along some of those principles. Um, so Anyway, if your approach up to this point, this is just an encouragement, if your approach up to this point has been, you know, I'm really glad we've gone through this study because, you know what, so-and-so, a few pews up, really needed this study. They really needed to learn about how their consciences need to be reshaped. If that was your thinking in this study, you missed it. I'm sorry. (laughs) You, You really missed the study because this isn't about you making sure so-and-so gets in line with how they should be thinking. It's, it's really about looking at your own life and saying, 
how do I relate to other brothers and sisters in this church? Um, that's a really important thing uh, that we've been trying to do. Um, really, to, to try to bring everything together, I want to go back to the, the definition that we did have of conscience at the beginning. Does anyone remember the definition that, that we've been working from, from the authors? It's on page 42, if you've got your book. Um, page 42, he defines it at the beginning. And he says, the conscience, um, this is middle of page 42, the conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Okay, the consciousness is your, or the conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. So it's really somewhat subjective, okay, in the sense that no two consciences are the same. So, I mean, even think about people who've grown up in similar backgrounds, even people who've grown up in the same family, okay, same family, and they can both be Christians, grown up in the same family, same backgrounds, and they might actually disagree on matters of the conscience, right? Because at the end of the day, it is a subjective thing. So that's important to remember. The second thing is no one's conscience is perfectly aligned with the mind of God. So we've tried to hammer this out along the way. No one, no Christian's gotten to the point where they can say, yes, what I say is right and wrong is thus saith the Lord on all matters. All matters, right? Now the Lord has revealed uh, the things, uh, Deuteronomy 29, right, tells us the, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Why? Why does it say that? so that we may do the words of this law, okay? So the things that are revealed very clearly in Scripture, they've been revealed that we would do them. There's no debate on those things, right? So once again, I want to be very clear, we're not debating the things God's clearly said. But then we get into matters of the conscience that maybe Scripture doesn't necessarily say something explicitly toward, and this is where we need to be careful how we relate uh, with others. So the bulk of this book has been more about how you relate to other Christians whose consciences disagree. So there's been a good chunk of this book that's devoted to your own personal conscience and thinking through how you think, but it's really been more about how you relate to others. I think another way, as I was thinking about this, another way to put it, this book's been more concerned, it's been concerned less with changing your position on matters and more about changing your posture toward other people. Okay, so it hasn't been trying to tell you you should take this position on this particular matter. You're not going to say this anywhere in there, right? So the the, the things that can be hot topics uh, that we debate on conscious-wise, they don't really come out and say you should have this position, right? But what they do say is you should have this posture of life toward others who disagree with you. You should you should have a loving disposition toward others. Um, once again, this is not budging on matters of first importance. Paul says he delivered to the Corinthians has of first importance. What did he deliver? The gospel. So we're not talking about being flexible or bending or any of those things on gospel issues. We're not to, to be, you know, the, the deciders of what goes in in the gospel. We're stewards of the gospel. We're proclaimers of the gospel, period, right? So we don't budget. We don't flex it. We don't do any of those things. What we've been talking about, though, are matters that aren't of first importance, right? So just want to make sure and clarify that as we kind of come to the, the close. But I want you to turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
trying to bring this whole study to a close, I thought this, this might be a more profitable place for us to spend our time, even than in, in the book. We're gonna, we are going to look at some, some of the last pages of the book, um, but I did want to look at 1 Corinthians 12. And we're going to read uh, the bulk of this chapter. Um, I'm going I'm to read it for us, so, so be ready. We're going to read from verse 4 all the way to the end, because it's, it's, a, it's a really helpful chapter for where we've been. This is 1 Corinthians 12. I want you to, to listen in particular. 1 Corinthians 12 is all about unity and diversity. Unity actually in diversity, okay? So has you, before we read, be looking for words like one, and same, okay, so there's the unity, but then also be looking for other, various, you're going to see both those words, it's all through there. This is all about unity in the church in the midst of a, of, of a diversity of members, right? Okay, so First um, Corinthians verse 12, I mean, we start off, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are varieties of service but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. I mean, are you seeing this already? This, there's unity, there's diversity. You're seeing both of these. Uh, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The common good of what? The body. Not, not your own self, not your own personal gifting, the common good of the body. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the workings of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as we want, as we hope, as He wills. Okay? So you're, you're seeing this diversity and unity all throughout this. And then He uses this illustration. This is what, what prompts the illustration of for just as the body, think about the physical body, is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Look at how many times we're seeing one, same, but look how many times we're also seeing differences in the body, okay? Now specifically, we're going to talk about this, this is differences of spiritual gifts, but I do think the principle can be applied more broadly to... to um, Person, like other gifts, you know, not necessarily gifts of the Spirit, but gifts, ways that God's gifted his body, personalities, different things that bring members of the body together, right? Um, verse 14, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members and the body, each one of them, as we hoped he would, as we wanted him to, 
as he chose. It's God's body. He chooses exactly those he wants in it. He gifts them exactly as they want. he wants them gifted to work together, okay? He says, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. This is getting back to this independent idea. No member of the body of Christ is independent of the others. The, 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 the life of Christianity is a dependent life, dependent on God and dependent upon others. You, you, you don't have all the gifts yourself. You can't depend on all of it yourself. You don't have all the knowledge yourself. You need the other members God's put in the body, right? Um, verse 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. You need them. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed his body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. Chapter 14 is going to go on speaking once again of spiritual gifts in the body. But what's chapter 13 about? Love. Okay? It's not accidental. Paul's not going on an unrelated tangent. He's not thinking, oh, you know what? It'd be great. Maybe I should just squeeze this in at this point. No, this, this letter is crafted in the way it is so that things that can cause controversy in the body, and, and obviously these things were causing controversy in the Corinthian church. That's why Paul's discussing them. Spiritual gifts, those who were belittling the gifts of others and those who were saying that all should have the same gifts, this is obviously causing some kind of problem because Paul's addressing it. And in the middle of addressing spiritual gifts, you've got this great chapter on love. You know, it's a chapter we love to put in weddings in different places, and it has a wonderful place in weddings. Uh, but here it's talking about the body of Christ and how love is the governing posture, once again, this idea of posture that we should have toward others. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul's actually going to say this. I love that he says this. This is 2 Corinthians five fourteen through 15. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. I love this verse. For the love of Christ controls us. Why? Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ becomes the controlling posture that we have towards other brothers and sisters. Once again, this book was much less about causing everyone to have the same opinion or position on items of the conscience. 
It was much more about encouraging the body of Christ to have the same posture toward one another about those who disagree, okay? So 1 Corinthians 12, this body language, this diversity, there's so much. I mean, just look around at our church right now. I mean, look even just in the room that we have. There's a lot of diversity, you know, in here. Diversity in terms of spiritual giftings, yes, but diversity in terms of backgrounds, diversity in terms of education, diversity in terms of uh, political leanings, diversity in terms of lots of uh, your method of schooling, how you want to school your children, diversity in terms of all sorts of things, right? All things that are not of first importance, right? So the, the primary thing we should be talking about is how do we agree, how do we work together with other brothers and sisters in these particular areas where we may disagree, okay? And you may hold a strong opinion on something. You may hold a strong position, but the stronger position should be to love your brother and sister, right? Regardless of whether you uh, agree or disagree. Uh, I wanted to use this particular illustration. I've used it before, so forgive me if you're getting tired of it, but it's helped me so much as I think about uh, the body of Christ and how this all works together, but this is The Boys in the Boat. So uh, one of my favorite novels that I've read uh, within the last few years. I actually was very excited to see they're making a movie of it later this year. Um, Normally movies aren't as good as the book, so I'd still encourage you to to read the book if you've got the time. But it's about the 1936 Olympic crew team. Okay, so crew is not a sport we're as familiar with down in the south. But you're in in a rowing boat, right? Those long boats. You've got nine members in a boat, okay? So nine members, and for that boat to work at its full capacity, for it to go as fast as it can, all the members have to be working together, right? If, if one oar's coming up while another's coming down, the boat's slower. If, if even by split seconds, guys, these races are decided by split-second things. So if you pull up to a split-second faster than the guy in front of you or slower, your boat's slower than it could be. So everyone has to be working toward this same goal. Uh, The author calls this the swing, when everyone's working together. And here's what he says. This is really helpful. Uh, He says uh, this swing, he said, it's an extended quote. He said, there's a thing that sometimes happens that is hard to achieve and hard to define. It's called swing. It happens only when all are rowing in such perfect unison that not a single action is out of sync. So oars coming in and out at the same time, everything happening together. Um, he says rowers, and this is, this is interesting, he says rowers must rein in their fierce independence and at the same time hold true to their individual capabilities. So rowers must rein in their independence, but also hold true to their individual capabilities. Races are not won by clones. Good crews are actually good blends. Someone to lead the charge, someone to hold something back in reserve, someone to fight the fight, someone to make peace. No rower is more valuable than another. All are assets to the boat. But if they are to row well together, each must adjust to the needs and capabilities of the others. The shorter-armed person has to reach a little farther. The longer-armed person has to pull in a little bit. Differences can be turned to advantage instead of disadvantage. 
differences in the boat can actually become an advantage as opposed to a disadvantage. Only then will it feel as if the boat's moving on its own. Only then does pain entirely give way to exultation. He said, good swing feels like poetry. So if you caught that, what he's saying, what are the rowers unified about? Because they're not all clones in the boat. This isn't uniformity we're talking about. They're not all the same size. They're not all the same shape. There's difference of people in the boat, but what are they unified on? Helping each other for the goal of what? Winning the race. They're in it to win the race, and they realize if the whole boat's going to win the race, everyone has to be working together, right? It does no good for one guy to have his personal best day if the rest of the guys in the boat don't do well and they don't win the race. What good is that for the ultimate goal? Okay, so the church filled up with different kinds of people, all different kinds of people, different backgrounds, different spiritual gifts, uh, different personalities, uh, different opinions on certain things, and yet differences can be turned into advantage as opposed to disadvantage. What is an advantage of our church, at least from the outside, people looking in? What's an advantage of people looking at our church and saying, there's a bunch of different kind of people in there? What would be an advantage? Real question, not rhetorical. Philip. Hmm. Yeah. So unified in a purpose of being here, and the purpose is to allow the Word of God to to be the dictating force of everything we do here, right? But what, what's a benefit of there being differences in this church? Why do those people get together? Yeah. Why is there a group full, is there a room full of people that come from different backgrounds, have different jobs, are in social economic groups, uh, have differences of opinion on schooling, you know, different things like that. Once again, I just want to emphasize we're not talking about gospel issues here, okay? Differences on that. We're talking about tertiary issues. They have to look at a group like this and say, what are they doing? Why do they get along? Because everything in our culture you think about clubs and things like that, you tend to find people that just look the same. You know, you, you want to be in a club because you want to be with people who are like you, who think like you, who do things like you, all these things. And so that makes sense. You know, let's just think you're in a country club. All the people tend to look somewhat similar in a place like that, okay? Um, our church doesn't look like that. And it piques the curiosity of people to say, why do they get together? What's so important that they would lay aside differences that the world fights about to be together? And they should look at it and say, Christ. That's the thing that they have in common. They love the Lord Jesus more than anything else. Those people love Jesus. They obey their Bibles and they love Jesus. But there's lots of differences in between. Okay? Um, I'm going to go on just a little bit, and then, like I said, I want to save time for some reflections on the book as a whole, but there's at one point in the novel, Joe Rance, he's one of the oarsmen, 
and he's, he's in a slump. He's really struggling to perform well. He's actually the man in the boat that's causing the boat to, to, to lose time on their trials because he's out of sync. He's out of sync with everyone else, and it's leading him to be frustrated with who? The other people in the boat. He's out of sync. The boat's performing well, and yet he's frustrated with the other people because it couldn't be him, right? It couldn't be him that's out of sync. It's, it's the other people. They need to get with it. They're the ones, all the other eight guys should be going faster to meet up to me. And so he's frustrated, and I love how he starts taking this frustration out on others, and I love how the author describes this. He says, it wasn't just the rowing, but Joe's crewmates that he had to give himself up to, even if it meant getting his feelings hurt. He had to give himself up to his teammates. And then, this is one of my favorite parts of the book, one of Joe's sage coaches. His name is George Pocock. He's been around the sport for a long time. Older man, wisdom, just years of seeing championship crew teams come together, knowing what it actually takes for crew teams to win races. And he looks at Joe, and here's, here's what he says. He pauses and looks at Joe after Joe's been talking about all these frustrations. And he says, if you don't like some fellow in the boat, Joe, you have to learn to like him. It has to matter to you whether he wins the race, not just whether you win the race. It has to matter to you that he wins the race, not just that you win the race. I think about our church and think about brothers and sisters that you've covenanted alongside, right? Does it matter to you as much that they finish this race well as it does that you finish the race well? Does it matter to you as much that they go on in holiness, that they grow in their understanding of the Lord, that they grow in loving Christ and others? Does it matter that, that they grow just as you grow? Or is it, well, I just hope I get there, right? That's not the body language we see in the Bible, right? That's not the family language Pastor Jerry preached on last week from Ephesians 5. This is a family where we have to be as interested in the sanctification and the holiness of our brothers and sisters as we are our own. And how does that happen? It happens when love controls us. This is what what we started with in Corinthians, right? So Paul says the love of Christ controls us. It controls how we think. It controls how we act. It controls why we do ministries the way we do. It controls why we talk to people the way we do. It controls everything about our lives, right? Um. Here's how I want to finish, and then I want to leave some, some time open. Uh, if you will, I didn't say we would completely neglect our books. Two things I wanted to just hit as we finish. Um, page 129, as we come to the end, um, I thought this was really helpful. So we've used the language of calibrating our conscience quite a bit. Um, I also like, he, he changes the metaphor a couple times in the book. He talks about your conscience being like a garden, that you regularly have to weed. So uh, with gardens, you regularly have to tend to a garden and make sure the right things are growing. But simultaneously, if the right things are going to grow, what do you also have to do? Make sure the weeds are not growing because the weeds will take from the nutrients of the good things that are growing. So you have to pull weeds. Gardening is constantly pulling weeds, planting seeds, right? So doing both of these actions. And I love that he says, uh, he talks about Paul. 
And you think about Paul, just think about the Apostle Paul when he became a Christian. How much weeding of his garden do you think he had to do? I mean, he, yes, he was converted instantly, but that didn't mean that he, once again, his conscience was perfectly purified so that he thought exactly as God thought. So he had a lifetime of weeding out of his mind things that habits he had built for years of being a Pharisee, right? Years of being zealous for these things of the law. And he had to weed those things out. And I'm sure they cropped up over and over. You don't just weed out the first time and then the garden's good, right? You weed out and then what happens a few days later? It's amazing. I mean, even in like the 105 degree heat, like the weeds spring up again. I don't understand it, but it happens. You have to keep weeding this garden. And I love that he says, this is page 129, He says he asked three questions. Paul regularly had to ask three questions in his garden here. Lord, what stays, what goes, and what's missing? I thought that was really helpful. As you think about your personal conscience, what stays? As you you dig into God's word and the word of God informs your conscience, what stays? What are you thinking about well, right? So what does need to stay because it's informed by the word of God? What goes? As you look at it, you think, that's not in God's word, right? That's something, that's a man-made law that I've made, that I've made and I'm treating like it's God's law. That needs to go, right? You don't need to hold others to this standard of your laws. It's, it's God's word, right? And then what's missing? What's missing altogether? What do I not even have in this garden uh, that the word of God's telling me? I thought that was really helpful. This is a lifelong process. Uh, the back of every um, Audubon agenda, there's the the phrase there, reformed and reforming. Every Christian, this should be your life. If, if you're a Christian and you come to a point where you think you've arrived, that's a dangerous place to be in. Unless by arrived, you've closed your eyes for the last time and you're in the presence of the Lord. Then you've arrived. You're seen face to face now. No longer in a, in a glass dimly, you're seeing the Lord Jesus face to face. That's when you've arrived. Until then, reformed and reforming. So that, that's kind of the, the word for individual consciences. But then also, once again, for how we relate to one another. And I'll finish um, with just two quotes from the book. One's on page 136. I thought this was, was, a, was a helpful quote. Uh, 136, kind of middle of the page, he says, the Bible gives clear evidence that God intends the little clashes of culture in your church to get you ready for the really difficult clashes of culture in missions and evangelism. So little disputes among brothers and sisters in this church over tertiary issues are exactly that. They're little disputes. And he said, God intends those things, learning to bear with others, learning to work alongside one another, has opportunity for you to come together to fight the really big clashes which are outside these doors, right? That's the attacks on the church. That's the attacks of the attacks of the enemy on the church and, and evangelism and witnessing and, and, and providing and, and going together as a group against the forces of evil, right? Um, he says, at least the church is supposed to be that laboratory. There are so many Christians in America that we have the luxury. Think about how many Christians we have in America. We're blessed. He said, there's so many Christians in America that we have the luxury of dividing up into smaller and smaller subsets 
so that we can be part of a church where members hold very few uncomfortable differences of opinion on matters of conscience. Anyone who's gone to another country, I'm sure Joel could speak to this, the Harbaugh's could speak to this, Clark could speak to this, anyone who's done missions in another country probably can resonate with this and say, we are very blessed. We have the luxury of being so defined that I want everyone to believe exactly this way about what I believe about Christianity. That's a luxury, okay? In China, I'm sure if you found someone who says Christ is Lord, you would, lo- you would cling to that brother or sister and you would find a way to work out your differences because you've got no one else. You want that brother or sister. We even enshrine some of those scruples in our bylaws to guarantee unity or more accurately, uniformity. Uniformity is not what we're after. Unity is what we're after, right? Uh, last thing, and then I'll open up for you guys. Very last paragraphs on page 140. He says, he asks these questions. He says, what's going to happen when you obey Christ and become a servant to the people inside your church who aren't like you, who make you uncomfortable? People you want to judge in your heart because they're not strict enough or people you want to roll your eyes at because they're not free enough? What's going to happen when you obey Christ and become a servant to people outside your church who differ from you and who make you uncomfortable? What's going to happen? The same kind of fruitfulness that came about when Jesus and Peter and Paul laid down their lives in the same way. Unimaginable fruitfulness. And fruitfulness always brings happiness to the glory and praise of God.